Hey there, Grace Church. It's uh, good to be with you again this weekend, and I uh, love the fact you can join online. I miss seeing a lot of you. Yeah, uh, but I'm glad you can join online. Let us know uh, that you're checking this out. Let us know how it's going. Uh, we miss seeing you. We look forward to the day we're going to get to see you. Uh, it's been good to get to know some of you through this venue, right? We've made some new friends by doing our services online, and so glad that you can join us. Uh, I had a friend shout out from Virginia, a new friend that I've never met. Uh, Mark out there in Fort Wayne. Uh, so we're just glad. This has kind of opened up some new doors. It's a unique time. We have jumped back into a series that we started way back when this all started uh, in First Peter. And uh, we're going to have some fun this weekend, have an interesting conversation together. The series we're in in First Peter is a book, a letter that's written by a real guy, Peter, to some real people who really need some hope. And what he's talking about is living hope. And what he's saying is, is that you and I can have an alive hope when we connect our lives to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who died in our place for our sin, was buried and rose again. And so when our hope is connected to the living Jesus, we have a living hope that gives us forgiveness, freedom. We become part of his family. We have this forever hope in Jesus. But the book is way more than that. Because when you hook your life into this living hope, here's what happens. You live hope. You live hope. And how does that happen? Well, you live hope by lining your life up with the one who is living hope. That's the point of the book. That living hope while living here on this earth is all about lining your life up with Jesus, the one who is our living hope. And so it's not only we trust him for our salvation, but we follow him as our Lord. This section we're in now, Pastor Aiden did a great job kind of getting us back in last week. So appreciate that. It kind of has an umbrella passage. And that umbrella passage is found in 1 Peter 2. Let me just show it to you real quick. It's God's will. So what's God's will for my life? Here it is. That by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Man, do we need that passage now, right? That somehow our lives are what silence the foolish talk of people. Not that we're, we're disparaging them, they're ignorant. They just don't know, right? And so how does that happen? Well, here's what we fleshed out. We silence their talk by, by the way we respond to government and authority, right? That's what he's saying. By the way that we follow Jesus, even in times of injustice, by the way we respond in the workplace, right? And he wants to take it a, a different place. Those are some controversial passages. Those are some tough passages. And you say to yourself, could it get any more controversial? Could the passages get any tougher than that? Yes, they can. We're going to do that this weekend, okay? But one of the reasons I like studying through a book is this. I like studying through a book because it forces us to look at a passage in its context. And as we go through 1 Peter, we're not going to skip over, right? We're going to kind of go right into the next chunk of the book. Now, here's what I can tell you. These might not be real familiar verses to some of you. I doubt any of you are going to say, hey, those are going to be my life verses after today, all right? But, but we got to make some ground rules, okay? Before we have this conversation, you have your Bible open to 1 Peter 3. You have your Bible open there. And here's some ground rules. First is this. I'm okay if you disagree with me this weekend. I'm even okay if you get mad at me during this talk. I'm just asking that you do me the courtesy of not turning it off till I get to the end. Hear me out. That's all I'm saying. The other thing I would say is this, ground rules, right? I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. But I am really, really committed 
to delivering the mail as it has been written. Because I am accountable to the one who wrote the mail, the one who wrote this in the first place. And so we're going to study it that way. Something else I just tell you is this. You just need to know this. I don't read anonymous mail. <laughs> Never have, right? And I have an email address, and I want to tell you what it is, right? It's rcombs at gracechurch.org, right? That's my No, honestly, here's what I want you to know. That this whole book is about living hope. And if Jesus is our living hope, then for me to live hope is to line up my life on Jesus and say, that's where hope is. That's where my hope is. Listen, too often, you know what we do? We want to line Jesus up on our life and say, hey, Jesus, here's the way I'd kind of like you to come alongside my life. And Jesus said, no, what I want you to do, I want you to live because we're hope and joy and purposes. I want you to line your life up on me. I'm living hope. With that said, Peter jumps right in. He says, hey, I want you to see how this fleshes out in this thing called marriage. First Peter 3 says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Everybody take a breath. Stay with me. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. He goes on to say, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. He begins with wives. This ought to be fun, right? This ought to, I'm glad you're watching online, right? He begins with wives. And he says this, he says, when wives live hope while living here, certain things show up in their life, in particular, in relationship with their husband. Now, everybody lean in right now. Before you get caught up in this passage, before you get caught up in certain words like submit and obey, that's what can happen. You can get kind of caught up and those things can jump out at you. I think it's important that we understand what the main idea of this passage is. And the main idea, submit, obey, all those things, those are secondary understandings, but they fall under the main idea. And here's the main idea that Peter wants you to know, is women, he says, I want you to put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in physical beauty. And then don't put your hope in men. But instead, put your hope in God. That's the point. He's saying when you do, you will live hope while living here. Here's the big idea. I want you to write it down this way. I think what he's saying is wives who live hope while living here make the gospel attractive. That's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is when I line my life up on the living hope, the one who gives me hope, the one who died for me and rose again, what happens is when I trust him, follow him, line my life as a wife, it makes the gospel attractive. It's the point of the passage, that I make the story of Jesus attractive. In fact, 
He goes on, you see that he said this in there. He says that wives who live hope while living here, that line their life up on Jesus, the living hope, they can make the gospel so attractive that for those, and this is some of you, some of you that are watching this, those who are living with husbands who do not believe, maybe they're not a Christian, maybe they claim to be a Christian, but you don't see any fruit in their life. What, what, what Peter is saying is those men may be won over with the attractiveness of your life. Women, let me just tell you something. Your constant nagging will not change your husband. Your impromptu sermons will not change your husband. Forcing your husband to watch my sermons <laughs> will not change your husband and might make him mad at me. <laughs> Turning up the radio when you're driving really loud, Christian radio, <laughs> so that he kind of hint, hint, nudge, nudge, gets the point, will not change your husband. In fact, it very well may push him further away from the gospel that you would love for him to embrace. Instead, Peter's saying this, you can win your husband even without words by making the gospel attractive. How do you do that? By lining your life up on the one who is your living hope, Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now listen, some of you ladies, before we go any further, this is your story. You're living with men who don't believe. You're some of my heroes. I know it's not easy. And I know your heart just breaks and bleeds and prays and pleads that your husband would embrace the good news of Jesus. And I just want to tell you this. You're, my, you're some of my heroes. And I think what's interesting is, is that God so cares about your situation. He said, I want to write a section of the scriptures for you. And he's saying it's your life that makes the gospel attractive. Well, how in the world does that happen? Well, look at what he says, okay? You know, we just got to do this, okay? We just got to do this. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that any of them don't believe the word they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Interesting, right? You know, we were putting out the preaching schedule. I got the idea. I, got, I drew the short straw, man. I'm not sure, right? Because we just got to talk about this. But I honestly think there's something beautiful here. Like, I think sometimes we're so afraid of this passage. And I actually think there's something beautiful here. First, Peter says, in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way that he's been talking about. In the same way that he instructs us to respond and recognize the government in our life, in the same way that he instructs us to even follow authority, bosses and others. And he instructs us eventually to follow Christ. In that same way, he's saying, I want you wives to recognize that God placed husbands in your home to provide leadership. Now I know, just let that swallow that for a second. In as much as that is an indictment or a passage, not an indictment, a passage for women to hear, it's an indictment for husbands to understand. So let's just say that, okay? But what he's saying is in the same way, Peter says, wives who've placed their hope in God will acknowledge, recognize, respond, and even help, even help their husbands live into that calling. Now just take a deep breath and let's kind of flesh this out, okay? What does that mean? I'd write this down somewhere. Wives make the gospel attractive when they willingly recognize and respond to their husband's leadership. When they willingly recognize and respond. 
Now, let me just say, I'm, I'm the elephant in the room, right? The elephant in the room. I know that bugs the snot out of some of you, right? Because you're like, I hate that, right? I get it and I understand that. But, but probably the reason you hate it is because you've heard it mispreached and mistaught. Here's what I know. Some want to make this a gender war, but the point of the passage isn't a gender war. The point of the passage is simply wives respond to God's role and responsibility for husbands in marriage. Let me say this. This passage has nothing to do with equality. I hope it doesn't, because in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus is God who willingly submits says, Father, your will be done. Has nothing to do with equality, has nothing to do with aptitude, intelligence, and ability. Following his lead doesn't mean you're always going to agree with him. The passage we're looking at just assumes and implies that sometimes you're not going to. Following his lead doesn't mean you don't wish there were things that, that would change about him or that you could change about him. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean all men. I've met maybe had conversations with some of you and you've had some horrible experiences with men. And, and, and here's what you would say to me. I don't trust men. That's what you'd say. And I would say, a lot of times I don't either. You don't have to trust men. I think what he's saying is, but I want you to trust a man. I want, I want you to, to somehow willingly recognize and follow the leadership of a man has nothing to do with women leading in the workplace, government. This is simply a passage written to wives, and it is in the context of a marriage. When you have lined your life up on the living hope, which is Jesus, you can follow him by willingly acknowledging that God gave him the role and responsibility to lead the home, to be the head of your house. Now, how do you do that? Well, let me show you back. We'll throw it on the screen here. Verses 1 and 2, he says, They may be won over without words by the behavior of the wives. And then he uses an interesting phrase, When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The ESV says this, When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Two words I want you to write down. First is this, respect. Respect. How do we do that? Respect. So, <clears throat> can we talk straight? Gals, can we just talk straight for a second? I'm assuming you're shaking your head yes. The fact of the matter is our culture has made sport out of belittling and making fun of men. If, if you're honest, some of you have gotten caught up in that sport. Can I just willingly say, us guys sometimes have given you plenty of material. I'm just going to admit that. But it's almost become a cultural sport to... To, to belittle and make fun of men, wives who berate and constantly demasculate their husbands. And Peter is saying, no, not when you line your life up on Jesus. Some interesting passages. This is all God's word. For some reason, God saw fit to include this in, in, in the letter that he wanted us to have in the book of Proverbs. He says this, it's better... Guys, to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. It's incredible, right? It's like, it's better to just go camping in the desert and just be alone than to be with a wife who is constantly demasculating, belittling, 
Another passage, Proverbs 19.13, A foolish child is a calamity to a father. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as constant dripping. He's saying that sometimes when there's nagging and belittling, and it's, like, it's almost like this marital waterboarding, you know? He's like, it's like this constant. He goes on to say this, Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. I, I think what he's saying is there's a different way. Some people will say this to me, and this is maybe what some of you are thinking, right? You're saying, my husband is not worthy of my respect. Some of you are sitting there saying that. You're saying, my husband's an idiot. <laughs> and, and truth be known, you might be right. Like, I've met some husbands that might fit that, right? But can I just suggest a couple things today? I just want to suggest a couple things today, see if I'm not right. He probably was that way when you married him, more than likely. Like, it wasn't like you rolled over one day and said, surprise, <laughs> you know? So it's probably not a huge surprise. And it also doesn't alleviate the fact that God says, I feel sorry for him if there's constant belittling, demasculating, berating going on. Beyond that, your nagging him constantly is not going to work. Ephesians 5, this is, this is what, and then we're going to go on. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband's head of the wife is Christ, head of the church, his body, of which he's Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I think the key phrase is, as you do to the Lord. Here's what I would say. Responding to your husband and the role God has given to him is an act of worship. And it has more to do, actually, with your relationship with Jesus than maybe even your relationship with your husband. There's a second word. How do we do that? It's respect. I think the second word I'd write down is purity. Purity. He says when they see your pure lives, the word is hagnos. You forget that, but it simply means this, this moral wholeness. And a lot of times when we think about purity, we think about all the things we don't do. I don't smoke, chew, drink, all that kind of stuff, right? But purity has as much to do with what we do do. Jesus was pure, and he was kind, and he was gentle. He had mercy and grace and lived in love. I think when I think about how to make the gospel attractive as a wife who's lined up on the living hope Jesus, it's purity. It's about showing your husband a life that's pure, not just by what you don't do, but by choosing to do what the pure one did, Jesus. I think of Proverbs 31. It's a passage, quite frankly, I think people make fun of far too often. It's powerful. An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. If you have an excellent wife, now would be a good time to say, sweetheart, you're way more precious than any jewel I could ever find. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Wow. He'll have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. There's a sense to which this idea of purity is this, that in the mind of a wife like this, in the heart of a wife like this, the way she makes the gospel attractive is she knows her husband's strengths. She blows wind into them. And she also knows her husband's weaknesses. And she protects and she lovingly helps. I love that. I've shared this before with you. My wife and I have been married for 30 years. 
And there's no one who knows my faults, my, my weaknesses, my, my problems more than Jennifer. And yet there's no one more committed to loving and helping and protecting me than Jennifer. I love the way a guy named uh, Matt Chandler, I read something he wrote when he talked about purity in, in the wife. He said, she's pure. He says, here's what the text is saying. In her heart and in her mind, she's aware of his strength. She praises and encourages what he does well. In her heart and in her mind, she knows where he's weak and she encourages and speaks life into where he's weak. She doesn't spend her time fantasizing about what it could look like to be married to someone else who didn't have those weaknesses. In that safety net of trust, the scriptures say the husband's heart feels safe and he'll open up and share. He goes on to say, do you realize that most men, ladies, listen to what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to teach you about men. Most men have been taught from an early age to shut it down. So where we feel safe, we'll share, but where we don't feel safe, we put on bravado and we do. I would say this, if your husband just walks around and always has this macho, there's something that doesn't feel safe. You see, this purity is this commitment. Now, people always box me in a corner and say, what about, what about, what about my husband, right? And, and more times than not, I will tell you, follow his lead. Recognize God's role in his life. Unless you're in harm's way or other people are in harm's way, I'd say get out of harm's way. Or unless he's leading you to, to blatantly disobey God and his word. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is saying, I want you to line your life up in me. I'm the living hope. Now, there's something else. <laughs> We're not done. <laughs> Yay me, right? We're not done. He says this. He says this in verses 3 and 4. He says, Wives, your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of the inner self, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. He's saying, Wives who live hope while living here cultivate what is beautiful in God's eyes. I'd write it down this way. He's simply saying this, wives make the gospel attractive by cultivating the inner and unfading beauty that matters to God. Your signature beauty should not be the fading beauty of external things, is what he's saying. The, the jewelry you wear, the hairstyle, the clothes in your closet. He's not saying those things are wrong. Don't misread the passage. But he's saying when you put your hope in that, it's not in something that's living and alive and becoming more alive, resurrection hope, but it's you're putting your hope in something that's fading and that's dying. That's what he's saying. That's the point. What he's saying is this. Our culture tells us what is beautiful. And then what happens is many times we spend a disproportionate amount of time, money, and energy trying to become beautiful the way our culture tells us to be beautiful. I, I just did a quick search uh, we as a culture have spent $50 billion in cosmetics, $30 billion in gym, mem gym memberships, of which $1.8 billion were unused, by the way. That doesn't take into account hair dye, tans, nip, tuck, reconstruct, all those kind of things, right? Our culture puts pressure on particularly gals to be pretty. And what Peter is saying is this, there is a beauty that will not fade. It's precious to God. I mean, can I just be honest with you? Some of you, maybe this weekend, are more worried about what guys think, what your peers are going to think, than you are what God thinks. You're more mindful of what culture says is beautiful. And what Peter is simply saying is, pay attention to what God says is beautiful. Pay attention. Can I talk straight 
to any single gals that might be watching. Can I just talk straight to you? The guy that you're trying to attract in your skin-tight jeans and your revealing blouse is probably not the guy you want to be married to and raise your kids with. Probably not the type of guy that you want raising your daughter. See, our culture kind of gives us these messages. And the fact of the matter is, the guy that that's what it takes to attract him is probably not the guy who you want to commit the rest of your life to. What does God say is beautiful? He says it's an inner person. It's the inner person that makes you beautiful. He's saying you might be considered hot in the eyes of the guys at your school, and yet not beautiful in the eyes of God. He's saying you might have the best clothes. You can dress for success, and yet the clothes of your closet are rags. That's what he's saying. He's saying pursue a beauty. How do I do that? Well, there's two words. You ought to write them down. Let's just go there. Gentle and quiet spirit. This ought to be fun, right? (laughs) What does he mean? Well, it's probably not what you think. I would just say this. Some of you grew up in church, and some backwoods fundamentalists have taken this passage hostage in order to keep women in tow, and that's not what it means. It's not even close to what it means. And if you think that's what it means, you don't understand what it means. Because when he talks about a gentle and quiet spirit, there's several things. I want you to write these down. I have no slide for them. I just want you to write them down. It means she's gentle. Do you know Jesus? That is a word that's used to describe him. What does gentle mean? It is a strength that is under control and leveraged for the benefit of others. She's gentle. She's not always pushy and demanding her rights. There's this strength, quiet and gentle, under control. She's at peace. Quiet doesn't mean mousy and and she never talks, but she's at peace. She's not restless trying to figure out who she is. I would say this, she doesn't need to put down other women in order to feel better about herself. She's not catty. She's loyal. She's strong. Proverbs 31 says she has depth that when she speaks, wisdom flows. That's quiet and gentle. That is the picture of robust strength. That's what Peter says matters to God. Now, for the sake of time, it probably hasn't escaped your notice that the gal's got six verses. (laughs) And if you look at verse 7, the guys get one. And before you get frustrated with that, I love the fact that God, in a culture in 1 Peter, that minimized women, he said, I want to talk to women, particularly who are in a situation where they need some hope. But he does have something to say to the husbands. Verse 7, here's what he says. Husbands, in the same way, in the same way I've just been talking, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. We'll come back to that. And as heirs with you the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is a fascinating passage. Most commentators made a bigger deal out of that first phrase than I ever had upon original reading. When it says, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives. And I think therein lies the point. The big point for husbands who line their life up on Jesus, the living hope is this, and you ought to write this down. Husbands who live hope while living here show up in their wife's life. 
This is key. They show up. They, they make themselves available. They're present. We don't just provide an income and make babies. We show up. The, the Greek word's fascinating. We live together and do a home together. That's what it means. We do a home together. It's literally what the word means. Guys, let's be honest. We have no problem showing up in life when somebody says, we're all getting together to watch Monday Night Football. We have no problem rearranging our schedule and somebody says, let's do a hunting trip, a golf outing, right? We have no problem showing up and say, hey, let's all go for it. We have no problem showing up. But for some of us, it becomes a monumental task to show up in the life of our wife in a meaningful way. Peter says, when you line your life up on Jesus, you will show up, husband. You'll show up in the life of your wife. You'll show up physically, romantically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually. It's like, show up, get up and show up. And I think he gives us two really important things, two ways we do this. First is this, husbands, write this down. A husband who shows up works hard to know his wife. I want to teach you something here. Depending on your version, how he says be considerate, live in an understanding way. It literally means this, to live in a way of knowing. Husbands are supposed to go to school. The school of your wife. To study her. To know her. It's not enough simply to know she's five foot five, brown hair, blue eyes, and she likes the color blue, right? I could spend five minutes with your wife and know that. But what he's saying is, I want you to know her, to study her, to understand her. Let me ask you this. You can amen this. Anybody who's married out there, recognize and realize that women are different than men, <laughs> Right? You, you, if you've been married, you know that, right? She's different than you. My wife's different than me. And, and here's what Peter wants us to know, that it's never okay if we line our life up on Jesus to look at our wife and say, I don't understand you. Because what Peter would say is when I line my life up on Jesus, I'm gonna pursue understanding you. I remember first married, man, Jennifer, my, my wife's way more emotional than me way more, and, and I might come across her and she's crying, and I'm like, I just don't understand you. I remember an old guy taught me this. He said, you know, that's not okay for you to say if you're gonna follow Jesus. I'm like, what do you mean? He showed me this passage, he said, look at her and say, help me understand. Help me understand why that hurts, why that makes you sad. Help me understand why this scares you. He said, I think that's what Peter was saying. He's saying. He's saying, I want you to study your wife, to know your wife. Learn to ask good questions. Write that down somewhere, guys. Learn to ask you. Don't make her... Some of you guys aren't very talkative. It's okay. But learn to ask your wife good questions. So, so let me tell you the difference between a good question and a not so good one. Sweetheart, did you have a good day? Yes. End of conversation. Sweetheart, did you have a good day? Yes. What made your day good? And then you know what you do? Just listen. Sweetheart, what, what is it in your life that you're right now looking forward to the most? Listen. Help me understand, sweetheart, what it is that you're afraid of right now. Listen. Don't try to fix our hurts. <laughs> you a fixer? Raise your hand. You a fixer? I'm a fixer. 
But sometimes the best thing we can do is just listen. I'm gonna go out on a limb. The reason some of us guys, some of us guys, I'm gonna put myself, are not good leaders is because we're leading people we don't know. We haven't taken the time to know the dreams, the strengths, the gifts, the fears, the ambitions of our wives. And a good leader will take time to know those whom he is leading. Do you know your wife? That's what Peter's saying. Show up. Show up. Be present. I think there's something more. If you see in the passage, it says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I'd write this down. A husband who shows up will consistently honor his wife. That's what that word means, respect, to value, to honor, to prefer them. How do we do that, men? I think there's several ways. First, he says, treat them with respect. They're the weaker partner. Now, be careful. He's not making a blanket statement. And some of you gals, I get it. You can beat your husband up. I get it. He's making a general statement. And I think what he's saying to us guys is this, is treasure their difference. Can we say that physically, on average, most gals would not be as strong as guys? We just say that, right? That's all Peter's doing here. In fact, when God made men, the word he used at the very beginning is different than what he used to talk about women. He kind of got the dirt and, I don't know, spit in or whatever, he rubbed it together, there's a guy, Right? Barah, you know, is the word in, in Hebrew. It's like bah. But when he, when he, when the lady came along, it's like he's this word. He fashioned her, you know, like she's different. And I think all he's saying is this: guys, treasure the difference. It's okay for your wife to be different. Treasure it. Find out what she likes. Do what she enjoys. Somehow treasure that God made her different. But don't just treasure the difference. Treat her as an equal. Treat her as an equal. That's what he's saying. She's an heir. She's an heir. She has a soul. She is not your servant. She's your sister in Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what he's saying. He says, treat her as an equal. She is equal, but different. I think what he's saying is the way we honor them is by leveraging the role and responsibility God's given us as a leader for her benefit. Every guy listening to this, lean in. Your role and your responsibility, your God-given response as a leader in your home should never be a burden for your wife, but always a blessing. That's what he's saying. Honor her by serving her needs first. Get off the couch. Turn ESPN off. Trust me, they're going to play it again later that day. Get rid of your video game. And serve your wife. Ask her how you can help her. If she cooked the meal, you clean the meal. Put the kids to bed. That's what he's saying. Honor her. She is not your servant. She is not simply your sex partner. 
She is a soulmate. She is a she is a sister in Christ. Sacrificially honor her by sacrificially giving up for her. Don't always assume she's going to rearrange for you. Honor her by encouraging her spiritually. Honor her by making room for her gifts to blossom. There's this fascinating passage in Psalm 128, I think it's verse 3. It says that a wife who lives with a godly man shall flourish and bear fruit. Like, like your wife, if she's living with a godly leader, her gifts will flourish. All of a sudden, the blossom. Honor her verbally in her presence. In her presence and out. That's what he's saying. That literally what he's saying is that men, our role as a leader is to be a blessing to our wives. Guys, can I talk to you? I've been a pastor for 27, 26, 27 years. And so I get a chance to see a broad stroke. And I want to tell you something. It's just a fact. The American church has become predominantly feminine. Predominantly speaking, there are more ladies than there are guys. And you know why that is? Because many times our gals have had the guts to step into the void and the vacuum that we've left for the cause of Christ. And my challenge to you as one of your pastors, your friends, and a fellow man who has too often vacated his spot is that we line our lives up on the living hope. The one who calls us to lead in our homes, in our marriages, in our church, and in our community in a way that will not be a burden but a blessing so that those around us flourish because we decided to leverage our leadership for the sake of others in the gospel. Can I pray with you? Father, help us. I pray for men watching this, that they would honor their wife today, that they would seek to understand and know their wife, that they would block out an hour to ask her questions, that they would take a walk with her, that they would allow for conversation that would begin to stir spiritual embers in her heart. Forgive us as men for vacating our spot. I pray for women. God, some of them have gotten caught up in the cultural flow of what it means to be beautiful. And I pray that the gals listening to them would determine desire. I pray that the single gals listening to this would determine a desire, I'm going to be beautiful in God's eyes. Because I want to eventually, if I get married, attract a guy who cares about what God cares about. I pray for wives right now, God where it is hard to apply this passage because the guy they're living with makes it hard. And I'm asking for a measure of grace and hope for them. God, this is a tough passage, but yet we want to follow Jesus. Help us to trust him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.